0: Hello, and welcome to the September 2022 edition of the Emergency Medicine Journal podcast. My name's Rick Boddy.
1: And my name's Sarah Edwards, and welcome.
0: So, today we're going to take you through another fantastic issue of the journal. We're going to pick out the highlights for you. There are some really good papers, including one that you published yourself, Sarah, which is very nice to see.
1: Yeah, a bit odd to be talking about my own paper, but we'll come on to it a little bit later.
0: Well, it's perfect to get the author's perspective, so congratulations on that publication. I know it took you a long time to get there as well, a lot of work, so um, it was great to see it in print.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure we'll discuss it a little bit later, but uh, I'll let you get started with um, what is potentially quite a controversial topic in emergency medicine.
0: Yeah, so this paper that we're going to cover has got a lot of attention in social media, It looks at the use of non-sterile gloves for patients with traumatic wounds who require a suture. Uh, And it's a very interesting multi-centre trial from the Netherlands, which involved six emergency departments. They included patients who had traumatic wounds that required a suture, and they randomised them to either receiving care with sterile gloves and sterile dressings or non-sterile gloves and non-sterile dressings. I thought this was really welcome because... There's a lot of controversy about whether we have to use full sterile technique when we're, use, when we're treating patients with traumatic wounds in the emergency department. I read some papers a long time ago that suggested that we could use tap water to irrigate the wounds and it leads to no increase in the infection rate compared to sterile water. But do we actually need to use sterile gloves? It would be a lot more sustainable for the environment if we could use non-sterile gloves, let's face it. So the authors did a non-inferiority trial. So we'll come onto that in a minute because it's really important to make the distinction between a superiority trial and a non-inferiority trial. They randomized the patients to the two groups, and then they followed them up after five to 14 days to look at the incidence of wound infection. So they had a, an awful lot of patients. They had over 1,000 patients included in this study from the uh, Dutch emergency department's the total sample size didn't quite meet what they'd anticipated originally. So they they set out to get a sample of 2,140 patients, but they actually only included 1,480. And that actually heavily influenced the conclusions that the authors drew from this paper. The reason they stopped early was largely because of the pandemic. It was taking a long time. There was a pandemic, I think, that, that influenced recruitment. Uh, so they stopped early. The question is, did that meaningfully influence the conclusions that we can draw. So let me tell you about the findings and then we'll just dig a little bit deeper into it. So in the sterile gloves group, the infection rate was 6.8%. In the non-sterile gloves group, the infection rate was 5.7%. So the lower infection rate with non-sterile gloves. So that gives you a a difference uh, of 1.1% between the groups in favor of non-sterile gloves. There are obviously 95% confidence intervals around that, and this is where it gets really interesting. So the confidence intervals go from 3.7% in favour of non-sterile gloves to 1.5% in favour of sterile gloves. Now, it's a non-inferiority trial, remember, and that means that we set a non-inferiority margin. What we're trying to show is that one group is no worse than the other, at least no worse. We're basically trying to show that non-sterile gloves are at least no worse than sterile gloves. and To do that, we have this non-inferiority margin. So we say that we'll accept that the non-sterile gloves are non-inferior if they're no more than 2% worse for the infection rate compared to sterile gloves. That's our non-inferiority margin. So our confidence intervals can't cross 2%. And you know what? They didn't. That upper confidence interval was 1.5%, which is below the non-inferiority margin. Now, the authors have been very conservative in their conclusions. Fair play to them for being conservative and not trying to overstate things, which is often what we see. And they've said, well, you know, the study was underpowered because it didn't quite meet the the full sample size. But by their own pre-stated criteria, they showed non-inferiority in the infection rate. So I thought this was really impressive. Uh, And for me personally, I found this quite compelling evidence that it would be reasonable to use non-sterile gloves for patients uh, with traumatic wounds in the emergency department. And you know what? The other thing to say is, although they held their hands up and said we under-recruited, they actually got a higher infection rate than they had anticipated. So the number of events is probably quite similar to what they'd originally anticipated. And therefore, the problem of being underpowered is probably not as bad as they, they might have imagined. So I think great trial, meaningful results. And for me, it will change my practice. What do you think, Sarah?
1: It's an amazing trial, and it's unfortunate that the pandemic has uh, got involved again, as, as we've seen in a lot of papers that we've discussed in recent months. I think for me, I, a bit like you, had always you know, thought about, well, you've got a dirty wound. What difference does it make putting sterile gloves into a dirty wound that you're dealing with within the emergency department? And I, and I often practice with, if I've got a dirty wound or a traumatic wound, I'd, I, I don't often use sterile gloves anyway. But I think I think this is a great paper, and it's probably going to be the best evidence we're going to get for a long, long time. To retry and do this, you know, would take an exceptional amount of time. So I think it definitely will be, you know, um, maybe not changing my practice, but perhaps affirming the practice that I already uh, approach at the moment. And I guess um, the question to you, really, Rick, with your sort of EBM hat on, and and really you know understanding the statistics here does it matter that they stopped it early do you think because that's what some of the controversy about this paper has been out there
0: yeah I think we can't ignore the fact that it stopped early it does have implications and in the editorial that accompanies this article David Metcalf from Oxford has articulated some reasons about why you know why that can introduce some problems and of, of course you know when you do a randomised controlled trial, everything has to be pre-planned because otherwise there's a risk that actually people are looking at the data as they go along and then just choosing to stop at the moment they see a significant result and it can bias us. However, all in all, I think that you know we've got a clear rationale for why they finished recruitment early in this trial. We've got reasonable statistical power and we've got confidence in schools that clearly show it's you know within the non-inferiority margin. So I'll be honest, I'm convinced by it. I I, I like this evidence. And like you say, it's the best evidence I think we're going to get. So really interesting trial. Go and read it because it could be a bit of a game changer. Let's move on to the second paper that we're going to cover. We're going to focus now on a couple of papers on shoulder dislocation. Sarah, you've had a look at these. And I think we start with point of care ultrasound.
1: Yeah, so that's right. So this time we're moving from the Netherlands to Malta, actually, this time for this paper. And it's looking at the diagnostic accuracy of POCUS, so point-of-care ultrasound for shoulder dislocations and reductions in the emergency department. So, this was a prospective single-centred trial, parallel randomized control trial done over a six-month period in 2019 to 2020. What's really interesting, which I wasn't aware of, but when you read the paper is that Malta only has one emergency department so this study was actually done in the only emergency department and effectively you could say that we have a population trial done um, for this and essentially what the paper was trying to look at was clinical examination versus clinical examination plus the addition of point of care ultrasound and how By adding point-of-care ultrasound in or POCUS in, did it improve the accuracy or sensitivity specificity of, you know, what was going on with the patient? And could we thus, therefore, maybe reduce x-ray burden? So they managed to um, recruit 1,200 patients, and you know they had a beautiful split of around 600 and 606 patients each arm. There were 290 dislocations. Then the rest were sort of what you'd expect, some, so some proximal humeral fractures. And of those 290 dislocations, I think nearly all of them um, needed reduction. For me. What is the key thing that's really interesting here that that the results really bring out is that so that they in this cohort had a, for the diagnosis of shoulder dislocation just on examination, had a sensitivity of 78% with a 95% confidence interval of between 70 to 85% with a specificity of 61% with a 95% confidence interval of 56 to 65%. With the addition of doing your examination plus POCUS, this brought it up to 100% sensitivity with a confidence interval between 97 to 100% and a specificity of 100% uh, with a confidence in really high confidence intervals of 99.2% to 100%. And this sort of was for most uh, fractures and plus or minus dislocations, you know, POCUS generally increased the sensitivity and specificity for them. Um, and what does that matter? So, the bottom line is here, the addition of POCUS to the physical examination significantly improves the diagnostic accuracy for dislocations, proximal humeral fractures, and is really helpful for reduction confirmation and then taking that step forward there may be instances and we'll come on in the next paper to talk about it where actually you might not need x-ray which could save a huge amount of time and you might just be able to rely on your POCUS to do
0: this what's your thoughts about this another great study to be honest I think this is fantastic and you know what this is an advertisement for why we should read the full paper because if you read the uh, abstract of the paper it's very impressive but actually you don't get The full value of it until you've read the full text because you start reading about the details of the sensitivity and specificity, and suddenly you start thinking, Oh, actually, you know what? This looks pretty good 100% sensitive and specific for um, identification of the uh, dislocation initially and for post manipulation identification of successful reduction. Pretty impressive stuff, really. My uh, feeling is that, well, number one, this is a really important question because when I treat a patient with a shoulder dislocation, I I find it a bit of a pain sending them to x-ray because I know they're in pain. I'd like to get it reduced as soon as possible. And we send them off to x-ray, which is adjacent to the department. It takes some time. The patient's meanwhile in in pain. It would be great if we could just do a bedside ultrasound and get on with the reduction, avoiding that step for the patients, which potentially could be a lot more pleasant. I think the next step is to actually see if this does lead to patient-centred benefits. Could we do the POCUS? Is it operator dependence? That's another one of the things that you get with these these studies where you get enthusiasts running the this, this study and, and their accuracy is fantastic because they're really skilled at it. When the general emergency physician gets a hold of it, will it be quite as good? And will it actually lead to patient benefits, reduction in pain, reduction in time to reduction, that, that kind of uh, a thing I think we need to look at. And oh, you can only do that by having an interventional trial, but we had to have this diagnostic accuracy trial before we could justify it. So great stuff.
1: Uh, yeah. And again, just to answer that about the um, the need, the POCUS training that's required, it's actually a two-step process that they use. And it was a one-hour one didactic training session that everyone had. And then it was a one-hour practical session that everyone had. And that it was literally just two positions. And I, I'd suggest going away just to read the paper because they take you through the steps that they did of how to do this ultrasound. So, you know, some really good pearls there if that's something that you want to use um, going forward clinically.
0: What a great paper to read. Upskill yourself in ultrasound and learn about the accuracy and how it relates to clinical practice. Moving on, we've got a second paper on shoulder dislocations, Uh, this time a retrospective cohort study looking at risk factors for concurrent fractures.
1: Yeah, so this was a paper uh, done by our French colleagues this time. So again, we're going uh, going around the globe with our podcast this month on our journal and it's great to see see all these papers and this was as rick said a retrospective um cohort study by Souza et al looking at the impresence well trying to understand the risk factors what is uh, for important fractures so firstly they defined important fractures as as what you Rick and I would probably think and probably most of the listeners would be things like Bankart's and Hillsax fractures and essentially what they did they went back through over a year's worth of data um, 602 patients looking at those that had important fractures and what they were trying to work out were are there any particular high or low risk factors that are useful to you know before you think about reducing the shoulder or managing the shoulder dislocation and what they found um, in this retrospective study of these 602 patients seen over these this couple of years was that age over 40, first episode of shoulder dislocation and traumatic mechanism are associated with important shoulder fractures. Thus, if you're over 40, if it's your first shoulder dislocation and it's a, in a traumatic circumstance like an epileptic fix. You can with these patients, you might not necessarily need a pre reduction x ray before them. And that sort of makes sense, really. Interestingly, most of the patients that they had in the study didn't even have any risk factors. So moving forward and how it could change your practice is having patients with these sort of risk factors um, may allow you to just get on and just relocate the shoulder again you know um, helping to reduce the x-ray burden, reduce the radiation risk and um, you know hopefully streamlining patient
0: management. Useful findings for clinical practice because if you haven't got any of those three risk factors which you mentioned age over 40, first dislocation and uh, associated trauma and they've given some examples of the mechanisms if you haven't got any of those then the in, the risk of having a concurrent fracture that was important is 0.6 percent and confidence source only extended up to well they extended up to 3.3 percent the question is is that acceptable but it's still a, it's pretty good it's pretty low risk and you know that that could influence our findings another way potentially of avoiding the need for x-ray before we can get on and manipulate the shoulder which is good for patients um, and so, yeah, really good, really good. I mean, I think I think it's really important as well because you can't just get on and reduce the shoulder dislocation. The, there are medical legal implications. We could have caused the fracture by by reducing it. If we, you know, I, I've seen that happen with Cocker's method, particularly the torque can cause a, a fracture. And it's important to know if that fracture was there before the reduction or whether we actually caused it. So it's important to have evidence to back our approach up. But if we can find that low-risk cohort, whether it's with ultrasound or these three risk factors, then fantastic. It could be great for our patients.
1: Great. And I think you've got the next paper, have you, Rick?
0: Yeah, that's right. So the next paper, we're going to take a a bit of a pivot. We're looking at pre-hospital identification of non-ST elevation myocardial infarction. So this is really close to my heart because we've just run the Presto study looking at uh, pre-hospital troponin testing. And in this study uh, from Norway, they had a look at whether they could use a combination of ECG, cardiac troponin and echocardiography in the ambulance to diagnose NSTEMI. So they included 253 patients who'd called for an emergency ambulance because of a, a primary complaint of chest pain. They trained six paramedics to do the point-of-care troponin test with this roche Cobas device, and they did a, an ECG and an echocardiogram. Now, the funky thing about this is that they sent all of the pictures to cardiologists. So the paramedics didn't have to interpret the echo images themselves. They just had to acquire the images and then transmitted them to the cardiologist, who would have a look to see if there was a wall motion abnormality. Now they found that NSTEMI was correctly identified in 18 of the 22 patients who had it. So they're small numbers, but this is an exploratory study, it's a feasibility study. So that gives you basically an 82% sensitivity. And when you look at the individual parameters in it, the ECG had a sensitivity of only 32%. The troponin had a sensitivity of 59%. The echo had a sensitivity of 64%, which is quite interesting. We certainly don't use echo in the emergency department for diagnosing NSTEMI because we, you know, we recognise that it's insensitive, but it was the most sensitive tool in the prehospital environment in this small study. So very interesting. I think our paramedic colleagues are likely to be very interested because of the use of echo in the prehospital environment so just one to keep an eye out on you know so something that's this kind of novel really what do you think
1: yeah I mean really unique and perhaps not a way I'd thought of using echo and I think again as you say it's a bit of watch this space and see what comes next I guess um, sort of playing devil's advocate I'd be wondering you know gosh poor paramedics having to carry another piece of kit for a quite a tight specific type of patient you know actually what's the benefit whilst there's benefits perhaps for the patient um you know actually for the for the wider implication of the pre-hospital environment in the context of the ambulance service that that would be my only question but again this is early work who knows what's around the corner next
0: absolutely now let's move on to your own paper (laughs) which is looking at time critical conversations telephone conversations in the emergency department so tell us about what you did
1: well, so this is a project that was set up way back in July of you know, the cornerstone of the pandemic when it came out in 2020. And this project was, we recognized, like I'm sure all of the listeners will have recognized that we suddenly moved from doing face-to-face consultations and delivering bad news to having to do everything over the telephone. And my department, like Everyone else's department probably found that you were talking to people more over the phone. We were having situations where actually we were now starting to have to break bad news over the telephone. And this is inherently something that we're not trained for. We've had no training in. Whilst we may have had training around breaking bad news and how to do that, it's perhaps a little bit different over the telephone. So the paper we wrote with my colleagues was the six-week pilot project we did back in July of, sort of May, June, July of 2020. And essentially, we set up a project using actors and a scenario, a typical COVID scenario. Over a one-hour session, two people with a series of observers and facilitators had the opportunity to give to a trained actor uh, deliver bad news. And the bad news was firstly to say this patient is critically ill, and then it was timed not in reality, but set then an hour later where the patient unexpectedly died from COVID and you have to break the bad news over the telephone. And essentially what we did with this pilot data was that we were able to take away the, the learning from the observers, the learning from the those that um, were doing the call calls and the actual feedback from the actors. And we were able to pull that all together into a a sort of an aid memoir to sort of help guide people about how you might want to break bad news over the telephone. And it's akin to some of the traditional models of breaking bad news, such as spikes, for example, and some of the others uh, about some of the key phrases and, and, and situations. And whilst I could talk about this project for lots and lots and lots, there is more further work coming out about this project. But some of the key things to really think about is and and this paper suggests and and some further work will hopefully continue to suggest is that actually you can break bad news over the telephone safely you can tell somebody over the telephone that their loved one has died or is dying and actually I would almost advocate in some respects it's probably better you've got that time to prepare got that time to get your notes ready. You can even give yourself notes. And I guess it's just thinking about the wider implications about telephones and how you communicate over in that media about, you know, how you do it, when you do it, and just making sure they're not in the car or in Tesco's or in the gym when you're delivering that bad news. And we were able to take from the actors some of the sort of really key sort of empathetic phrases that they both the actor and the observers found really useful. And the one that always sticks with me and the one that I was really surprised that the actors who were playing the relatives were happy with was that I'm really, really sorry that so-and-so, so-and-so has just died. And they were really they felt happy to be told that they died as opposed to passed away or any other euphemisms like that. And I think um, I would suggest, but obviously it's up to people to have a read of some of these phrases and ideas about how you might do that, because sadly, COVID isn't going away and how we deliver healthcare is you know, forever changed, I think, for a long time. And I think we still will be having to give difficult conversations over the telephone. So over to you, Rick.
0: Well, really important piece of work, Sarah, because this has become so topical during the pandemic. To be fair, we were already doing this, I think, in emergency departments even before the pandemic, but COVID really emphasised the importance of communication over the telephone because it was the only means that we had for a long time during the lockdowns. I remember being at medical school and we, we were trained to break bad news to patients and relatives when we were speaking to actors, but it was all face to face And the telephone communication actually adds a really interesting element. Uh, So I think this is a fascinating piece of work. You emphasize the importance, for example, of silence in the conversation, uh, allowing them space, not necessarily um, communicating all of the information at once, giving them time to digest it. So there's some really important tips from this, a great piece of work. And um, once again there's information in here that's directly relevant to our clinical practice so everyone who's listening today just go out and check that out and digest the information because it's undoubtedly going to influence your practice going forwards so that brings us almost to the end of the podcast Sarah, doesn't it but we were going to cover one more paper
1: yes we were so well you've got the last paper for this month's podcast
0: yeah. And this is on triage. So we've had a few papers recently in the journal about triage. And this is another paper from the Netherlands, which compares the accuracy of the Netherlands triage scale to the Muse score. And this is a, a comparison of a complaint based triage scale, like the Manchester triage system, where, you know, we, we triage based on what the perceived severity or urgency of the patient's complaint versus an entirely physiological training score, which Muse is. And they looked at which one, in a retrospective study, a large retrospective study at a single centre in the Netherlands, which one more accurately predicts all because 30-day mortality and the need for hospital admission. And they measured accuracy using the area under the receiver operating characteristic curve. You can see that the physiological scale had greater accuracy uh, for both of those outcomes, had a better area under the receiver operating characteristic curve. So... Interesting findings, and I think it's the start of a conversation personally uh, about triage scales. The findings seem convincing, you know, better diagnostic accuracy for those two outcomes. My questions would be, are they the outcomes that we're really looking for with triage scales, uh, or is it more about the interventions that are necessary in minutes to hours in the emergency department? And also, what about those conditions that don't derange your physiology, like myocardial infarction? Patients present with normal physiology. Often the pain's completely gone, but they really do need a time critical intervention. It's the same for stroke, for example. Well, what will happen if we used entirely physiological uh, triage systems to those patients? Will we identify them? So really interesting study. I want to go and read. What do you think about the uh, relative merits of the two approaches to triage, Sarah?
1: I think, you know, as, as the journal has shown in the last couple of months, I think, you know, there is huge research and evidence needed for triaging, not only getting the right population, the right methodology for the right conditions and, and, and you've hit the nail on the head and what what struck me is, you know, physiology is great and phenomenal, but a lot of conditions we see that are life-threatening don't alter your physiology and that, that's the thing that always worries me, not necessarily with this paper, but in general. I think, you know, there's still a huge amount to learn and and get it right. And I think, as you say, it's about thinking about, well, what is it important? Is triaging quickly and efficiently important for the patient, important for the department? Are they joint? Are they mutually exclusive? You know, those are some of the questions that I'd be thinking about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So that brings the podcast to a close. We've covered some really great papers. There's more we haven't covered. You should definitely go and check out this issue uh, online as well. Have a read through it. Hopefully this podcast has brought you a really uh, helpful summary of the papers. As you can see, there's plenty of clinical relevance in there. Hope you've enjoyed it. So from me, until next time, goodbye.
1: And it's goodbye from me. Bye-bye, everyone.